Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Warren FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Benedivo. Today, I'm delighted to have Bill Capuzzi, the CEO of Apex FinTech Solutions, as my guest. Apex FinTech Solutions is a leading provider of custody and clearing services for the financial industry, powering some of the most popular and disruptive FinTech platforms in the world. Bill has a wealth of experience in the broker-dealer space, and in this episode, he shares his insights on how trading has evolved over the years, how technology has transformed the plumbing of the financial industry, and how Apex is enabling the next wave of fintech innovation with regards to wealth tech. We also discuss the importance of failing fast and taking risks in your career, the nuances of Apex wealth tech products and multiple APIs, the opportunities and challenges in the wealth tech space in general, and the trends that Bill sees in consumer-facing fintech. This is a fascinating conversation, especially if you want to learn more about wealth tech and how it's changing the way we invest and manage our money. So let's get started. Thank you so much, Bill, for joining us on the Warren Fintech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Um, I'm in Princeton, New Jersey. It's Princeton, a, New Jersey. A pleasure to be with you, Josh. As I was saying, I'm in Seattle, so you, you call me at 6.30 in the morning. But uh, <laughs> anyways, thank you so much for joining us. It really is an honor and a privilege to to, to have you and, and represented from Apex, which is an amazing fintech company on, on the Warren Fintech Podcast. Um, if you could just give us a little bit of background, I guess, on yourself growing up, um, and how do you get started in, I guess, let's say finance, cause I know you started in finance. Yeah. So I, I, I'd love to say is, uh, you know, high school or an into college, I had this like vision of sitting in this seat one day. Uh, but it, uh, it certainly, uh, it certainly wasn't the case. Uh, so I, I went to school, a small school in, in uh, Connecticut called Wesleyan university, uh, liberal arts school. Um, and, uh, I had designs on going to med school. That was kind of the, the path. I love science. I love math. Uh, and so the focus in, in college was, okay, take all the med requirements through an environmental science degree, right? As the liberal arts school, that was kind of the, the only path to get, get, uh, the right requirements. Um, uh, and, and why I'm, I'd love to understand how things worked. I love to understand sort of the plumbing, the guts, um, and I was also sort of a binary thinker. It's like, there's a binary outcome. It's either yes or no, black or white. There's an answer to things. Um, coming out of college, I had a bunch of debt and the notion of taking on a lot more debt by going to med school was, was daunting to say the least. Uh, and so I went, became an environmental scientist. Really to sort of make some money, pay down some debt, and then kind of figure out um, you know, med school kind of after that. Uh, I did that for a number of years, learned that my calling in life was not to be an environmental scientist. Um, it was cool uh, that you know, kind of focusing on improving the, the environment, um, but just wasn't wasn't the thing for me. Um, and I wasn't ready. I didn't make enough money to pay down any of the debt, to be frank. The scientists don't make a ton of money. Uh, and I, I was presented an opportunity to go work at Rutgers in New Jersey. And the cool part about going to work at Rutgers was uh, you could go to school for free. So again, you know, uh, I was laden in debt, but I knew that, you know, sort of this environmental thing wasn't for me. Uh, the notion of eight more years of, of med school wasn't yet there for me. And so I, I went and jumped to Rutgers and... Uh, I got my MBA, right? When you don't know what you're doing, you go back to school. Uh, and this, you know, this sort of option to go for free, get paid 
like I had a full-time job and go to school at night was, was attractive, did that. And the connection into, into finance was really by happenstance. So I, my roommate from Wesleyan, his father worked for a company called DLJ, which was an investment bank way back when. Uh, and I talked to him about it. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do after I finish my MBA. And he said, well, well why don't you talk to my dad? Which I did. Uh, and his dad got me into the MBA program at DLJ. And sort of the rest is history from there. So while you were at DLJ, right, you worked, ended up working in custody and clearing. Is that, yeah. is that right? Yeah. So, so while you were, while you were there, if you could take us through, cause I was hoping to teach some listeners about this whole world of wealth tech and custody and clearing through this episode. So if you could just take us through maybe a little bit of how did custody and clearing work back then? So, so take us through the nuances and, and kind of the data. Yeah, so. Yeah, let's, let's, you know, I'm going to date myself. We're, we're going back to the late nineties. So I'm, I'm an old guy in this industry. Uh, at the time, young kid right out of med school or out of my MBA and, um, DLJ owned a company called Pershing, uh, and the MBA program, you kind of went through the MBA program and then they sort of placed you in some part of DLJ and I did that place at Pershing and you can imagine you're a young man. Um, you know, you, you're ready to take on the world and you're working for this big investment bank that does all these really cool things and you get selected to go to, and by the way, DLJ's headquarters in Midtown, New York, this company they own Pershing was in Jersey city, New Jersey. Um, and by the way, I'm a Jersey guy, so I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, taking pot shots at Jersey, but Jersey city in the late nineties was not necessarily what it is today. It's not a great place. Um, and it was, you know, just to be crass, it was the ass end of the industry. So I'm like, geez, what did I do to deserve this? Like, why am I getting sort of banished to this custody clearing business? Like this isn't banking. It's not trading. It's not the sexy side of, of our industry. It's sort of the, the back end of our industry. Um, but when I said, okay, look, let's, you know, the answer is yes, uh, you know, of course, right? And it's sort of one of the things I did early on in my career, just keep saying yes. When opportunities were presented to me, it's like, yeah, I'll do it. Um, and so I, I moved to, moved into Pershing and it was my first introduction to how sausage is made in our industry. And Josh, I mean, again, you're going back a ways, right? It's 25 years ago. We were trading in fractions. This is crazy, but we were trading in fractions. It wasn't decimals. Right. Like when you, when you would see the price of a stock on a screen, it would be a fraction. It would be 25 and one eighth or one sixteenth. Right. Or something like right. Well, yeah. and it translated into cents, but you can imagine it wasn't, you know, now you have penny wide spreads, right? You have Tesla's trading, you know, $225.01 dot versus O2. Back then, you had spreads that were, right, you talked in quarters, 25 cent spreads, right, 15 wow. cent spreads as the minimum. And so you can imagine it was just an amazing amount of sort of opportunity for the brokerage industry to make money because people were capturing that spread. Right, right, right. Uh, so that was one. Uh, two is for, you know, for folks like you and me, you know, uh, back then, like I was 20 something year old kid, it was for rich people. You couldn't invest 
if you had a hundred dollars because you place one first of all there was no such thing as fractional shares so you were buying whole shares in companies in fractions and the price to put a trade on so let's just say i had 200 dollars and i wanted to buy ibm back then the trade cost me 20 bucks right so you're buying something for 200 dollars one share right i couldn't afford any more than maybe one share and roughly a tenth of wow. the, what I had was going to go to pay the brokerage firm. So, and then the access was not there, right? So you're, you're talking about early days of the internet. You, you didn't have apps. You didn't have phones that had apps, right? You were doing a dial up modem where you had to literally put a CD into a computer to sort of start up, uh, you know, sort of on online brokerage platform like E-Trade back then. So it was really hard to invest. You had to sign paperwork. Uh, and so it was, it was, it was better than it had been, but it was still something that the industry was set up for rich people, right? It was not set up for, for what it is today. How, how did it actually work? So, so a broker would call Pershing and Pershing would say, okay, we're going to allocate now, you know, five shares to John Doe who lives in this place. You have some sort of records around each of your clients. How, how exactly did it work back then? Yeah, I mean, let's, you know, just walk through the, the workflow. So you, you, Josh, want to open an account. Okay, you have some broker that leveraged Pershing because Pershing was the custodian. So you use ABC brokerage. They would, uh, they would FedEx you the new account paperwork. You'd use a pen, you'd write down your name, your address, social security number, all that information. Uh, there'd be a bunch of yellow stickies on it. Uh, you'd sign and you know, fill out where they asked you to fill out. You'd put it back in the envelope. And you'd send it back and you'd wait. You'd wait until somebody opened that up, took it out, rekeyed it into a system uh, and generated an account number. Okay, so now it's like, okay, I had a counter. Then they're like, okay, Josh, now you have to write a check and send a check in the mail to us to actually fund that account. So you can imagine, right? The first part is weeks, weeks and weeks. Then the accounts open. It's like, okay, now we got to fund this thing. It's more time. And, and now you have the account open and there's money in it. And you're talking, this is when things started to become electronic. But yeah, most of the industry was, okay, Josh, here's the phone number. Call us and tell us what you want to do. And somebody will pick up the phone and say, we will buy you, you know, 60 shares of IBM, right? Uh, and they'd execute the order and they'd tell you what the price is. And then, you know, at that time, you know, it was, okay, the internet is around people. You could log on and see the trade. Great. Um, or you were waiting for your statement or your coffin to show up in the mail uh, and tell you what the price was. So it really was not set up to be able to, A, you know, the barriers to entry were really high for, for you know, John Q, Jane Q public. And B, it was obviously not efficient. It was incredibly inefficient in the way that it worked. Uh, so yeah, we, we've come a long way from, from those days. And, you know, by and large, everything was manual. There were systems to obviously process things, but if you wanted to cut a check, now you wanted the money out of that account, you had to call. 
Uh, you wanted uh, a duplicate statement you had to call. Uh, and so, you know, this was early days for me, you know, sort of formative years for me to look around and be like, this is nuts, right? We're, we're settling trades in T plus five, right? It's just like, what is happening? This is created There's so much opportunity to make this better. So, so then you see this sweeping wave of innovation across, you know, internet revolution, all these different things. So how are you thinking through that as like a, as a younger person in the industry and you're thinking through, okay, you know, how can we apply this innovation? How are you seeing that come into fruition at Pershing? Kind of where did you see the opportunities where were you like, mm, if only we could build a solution for this? Or were you just saying there's so much opportunity here that we can't even figure out where to, to drop in solutions? Yeah. And, and, you know, for your audience, I think, uh, you know, there's a little rinse and repeat for them just in terms of what, you know, what my, some of my advice for them is I started using some of the products, right? CSFB Direct, it was, a, you know, there was uh, uh, DLJ Direct, there was E-Trade. So I started trying to leverage the products to invest as a young person. And there's no better way to actually kind of understand kind of how things are working or not working than to be on the front lines and say, okay, how could this be better? And what was really unique for me in particular was I was using the products on the front end and I was learning as best I can. I ever go back to the yes. I just said yes. Anytime somebody wanted something done, I just said, yeah, I'll do it. So I'm learning what was happening, the plumbing of the industry. And, you know, I don't want to say it was clairvoyant, but you, you could see like, hey, this you know, trying to do something on the front end and here's how actually it works in the back end. Gosh, is a better way to do this. Uh, and that started this sort of wheel turning in my head around, hey, there's there's a better way. Uh, and, um, and there's a better way largely driven from the back, from the bottom up, not from the top down, because there's only so much, let's go back to the days of E-Trade or Scott Trade, there was only so much that they could do in terms of creating a cool experience for the end customer that's sort of logged onto their platform without the custodian fixing it. Like you mentioned about opening an account. It's like they were only as good as their weakest link, right? And the challenge was is that the custodian platforms, and we'll get into it kind of fast forward to today, it's old Cobalt code, right? Cobalt code is from the 70s. It's IBM mainframe. It's batch processing, right? Literally, it's 2023. Even today, we are batch processing things, meaning things get stored up throughout the day. And then there's like an end of day. And then it's like processes overnight in some giant IBM mainframe. And then the next day you wake up, it's like, okay, here's your start of day. Like what other industry does that happen? Right? Yeah. So yeah, we still have a long way to go. That's so funny. Um, that totally makes sense. And, and wait, so, you, so you're this, you know, you have all these ideas and you're thinking, okay, wow, there's so much opportunity here. What was your next step? So I know you started this thing called G-Trade. Um, yeah. Take me through like, what were you, what was your thought process? How did you, how did you want to affect this change and kind of execute on all these ideas yeah. you had? It's, it's a really good question. So, um, so you could see the plumbing uh, and it was, and, and I could see the inefficiencies in the plumbing. Um, uh, and at the time, which, you know, Pershing's an amazing company, amazing people. Um, I was a small fish in a big pond, 
Okay. And, you know, it was just hard for me to see some ability to actually affect real change um, as a young man in a, in a big company. And so um, I had sort of the good fortune of running into, yeah, one of my mentors who at the time said, Hey, look, we're, we're going to, we're going to do something really disruptive in the industry um, and create this company called Convergex. And the whole premise there was how do we use technology to sort of drive change, more focus on the institutional business than the retail business. Um, but it was about how we're going to actually upend the process. And, you know, and so the consistent theme, yes. That sounds like that's right up my alley. Um, and so I jumped in both, both feet to say, okay, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, help be one of the founding members of this company and drive change. Um, and so that was, you know, after almost 10 years at, at Pershing ish, um, you know, I left, um, to help form this company called Convergex. And one of the divisions that I ran, um, uh, was a company called G Trade. Um, and again, it was, uh, sort of revolutionary for the time, you know, so we were offering non-US trading electronically, uh, to about 70 different markets around the world, uh, through one, I'll call it API, but one pipe and predominantly it was for institutional investors. So think hedge funds, uh, and at the time really, you know, you, you've gone back 2005, it was hard to do that, right? To, to sort of give one solution to a hedge fund and allow them to trade 70 markets. Uh, and, um, yeah, that business grew tremendously over the course of the next, you know, five, six years. How did that actually work? You were hooked up physically to the 70 exchanges or whatever that you wanted to, to trade on Yeah, that you wanted to allow your customers to trade on. Yeah. This is back to the plumbing. It's like, okay, yeah. think about, okay, they have some order management system the hedge funds using, they're plugging in once and you know, think sort of hub and spoke. My, the job, the, the uniqueness of what we built was, okay, how do you take an order for Botswana, an order for uh, that's destined for Japan in order that's destined for the UK or Canada or Mexico, uh, and sort of bring in the order, determine what the order, where the destination is and route electronically in yeah. that exchange. You're almost yeah. like a stock, stock exchange router. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and, you know, look, there was a lot of that around as it related to the U S market, but we're really unique kind of cutting edge and kind of uh, the trailblazers in doing that across 70 markets electronically. Uh, pretty proud of what we did. And obviously there were followers, fast followers, you know, after us, but uh, we were one of the pioneers to kind of drive electronic trading globally. We're going to get to this in a second about Apex, but is there anything that you learned or that you took away from your time at G-Trade that really informed some of the things that you did at Apex or, or were lessons or things that literally that you learned like hey this on this little piece of plumbing works um yeah then, look back, back i'd say more macro josh so one is fail fast so you usually learn more from your failures than your than your successes and uh you know at the time you know trying different things um and 
there were times when I was convinced that something was going to work, right? Getting into a new market or we're going to build a certain algorithm. And I was convinced that there was this massive opportunity. And instead of measuring three times and cutting once, I was like, okay, well, let's measure once and let's get going. And you, you saw results that weren't what you wanted and you doubled down. I, I would double down. I was like, okay, well, let's keep going because I'm convinced of this. Uh, and yeah, tail between my legs, I had to sort of admit defeat. Uh, and what I should have done is admitted defeat a long time before I, I, I eventually throw in a towel. And I think about that, you know, those experiences at, at G-Trade and you apply them to Apex. You know, one of the things we do, we move pretty quickly. We make sure we dot I's across T's. But if something's not working, it's like, okay, raise your hand, right? There's this, you know, it's not about blaming. It's just about like, hey, let's let's decide that this isn't working and fail fast. And that was for sure out of all of the ideation we did at, at T-Trade. Yeah, I love that. That's that's like very much in line with things that you hear all the time, which is strong conviction, strong convictions loosely held. Um, yeah, exactly. So, so take, take me through now, start of Apex or, or I know yeah. there was, there's this, this weird transaction going on where they want you to come in and, and be CEO of this company called Apex. Um, but, uh, yeah, take me through that, take me through the story, your thoughts about, you know, leaving G trade to go, to go around this, this yeah. startup, I guess. So let's, let's start with the, the, you know, the Converge X, the parent company G trade, um, really proud of what we did it amazing people created amazing culture was really proud of of it but like i said there were fast followers so all of a sudden you know we went from being sort of a, the only game in town to every big bag kind of copied what we were doing and so competitively it, it became a lot more challenging and dare i say kind of commoditized right and you know, purpose is really important to me. It's like, okay, we're going to, the purpose of this company, what are we doing to make the world a better place? What are we doing to drive change? And what I started to feel personally was that, okay, that ability to sort of iterate and fix and change and do something really creative and unique uh, was much more difficult than it was in the early days of G-Trade. Um, and I had that desire to keep going, keep changing, keep driving innovation. Um, and again, things happen for a reason, Josh. And your career and folks listed this, like things happen for a reason. So in and around this time that I got this sort of, you know, this little birdie on my shoulder chirping in my ear, um, Apex uh, sort of shows up. And, you know, bore you with all the details, but Apex spawned out of a failed company called Pensant, which was a public company based in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and it sort of blew up in spectacular fashion back uh, you know, a little over about 11, 12 years ago. And um, and the, the folks that were running the company, the management team, were not good stewards of capital, I would say. They made really bad decisions that were really sort of uh, dictated by profit. And this business, you have to dot I's and cross T's, right? It's, you know, we talk about the cool things, you and I can talk about all the cool things that happen, but you, you have to be good stewards of capital. You have to 
um, make sure you follow rules and uh, at the you know at the base and they didn't uh, so they blow up uh, one of the companies that custodied cleared through Benson at the time was a was a firm called Options House Options House was owned by a company called Peak Six out of Chicago and so the SEC with the was sort of a gun to to the Peak Six. Uh, founders heads said hey look we want you to acquire the assets of this thing called Penson and really to save their options house they reluctantly decided hey we'll do this and you can imagine this thing is hemorrhaging cash uh banks that support it were running away clients were all trying to get away from it as fast as they could so it was you know, it was about a, as much of a dumpster fire as you're going to get, right? And and I, I applaud you know Matt and Jenny, you know Jenny Just, Matt Holsizer for for taking the risk because I don't know if I would have done it because it was a pretty rough situation. But they did it because they had to save Options House, their crown, one of the crown jewels of Peak Six at the time. Uh, so they're into it. Uh, they don't understand custody and clearing, um, but now they're the proud owners of this thing, uh, and. Uh, and they cleaned it up, uh, and, but realized, Hey, we don't know how to do this. We don't know what we're doing and immediately say, hey, maybe we should sell the company. And so it kind of makes its way out to the street and I hear about it. And you can imagine like, I, this is where I came from, right? And this, I loved the stuff at Pershing and remember I was this small fish, big pond, knew what could be, um, uh, within Persian, but just not able to actually affect the change that I thought was necessary. And so I tried to buy it from Matt and Jenny. I had friends in the private equity world. Uh, I got some friends uh, that, that were going to back me. Uh, and I showed up in Chicago where Matt and Jenny are and said, hey, I'll, I'll buy it from you. Um, and make a very, very long story short over probably six months. Uh, I couldn't convince them to sell it to me at the price that, that I thought it was worth. Uh, but they were successful in convincing me to come and, uh, and, and run Apex. Um, and it was this tiny little company, but I knew what it could be. Right? I knew sort of the strong, the, you know, the bones, the structure of the company. And I knew the industry, the retail industry really well and said, this is an amazing opportunity. Uh, so, you know, like I've said a few times, yes. Yep. Uh, was it a calculated, uh, decision? Sure. I, you know, I literally have on my phone, I still have it on my phone, Josh, the, the pros and cons of moving to Apex. I literally sat on my phone in notes and wrote, okay, what, why should I, and why shouldn't I do this? I keep it and I look at it from time to time. It's funny to read what I wrote, you know, almost, you know, eight years ago. Uh, for me to make this decision. And it was tough because I had all these people that believed in me, that I hired, that you know were part of this thing at G-Trade and Convergex. Um, but the sort of gravitational pull for me personally to say, hey, hey look, um, you know, half time of my career, it's time. Like I, I have got things to do. I've got to continue to sort of progress and I've got to continue to change. And uh, yeah, it's been an amazing run. What, what were some of those pros and cons uh, 
that you are comfortable sharing. Oh, gosh. Well, let's start with the cons, right? The company is based in Dallas, Texas, right? I'm a Jersey guy. <laughs> right, right. I'm born and bred, right? I, I, you know, I spend the, week, uh, the weekends on Jersey Shore. Dallas, Texas was not, no, not something that uh, that that I had you know, dreamed of moving to. Um, uh, and so we negotiated that I wasn't going to move there. I wasn't going to move my family. I have four kids, a wife, a couple of dogs. And the notion of picking up the family and moving was just not, not something that, uh, that was, that was on the, you know, the personal agenda. Uh, two is, yeah, it was scary, right? Clients are leaving. You know, the parent company had just said that they were trying to sell it. So I'm stepping into a pretty uncertain situation, right? Versus the one I was in was was certain. I was established. People uh, looked up to me. I was a good leader in that company. And so to, to say, hey, I'm going to leave this thing, the sure thing in New York, to do this uh, was sort of scary. The biggest pro was I know we can change the industry. I know from my days at Pershing, like what what has to happen in order to drive this retail sort of, you know, uh, you know what, what happened, right? This gold rush that happened in 20, you know, 2020 and 2021. Like what, what has to happen for a custodian to do amazing things and drive change? So I'll tell you, it was the biggest part was, hey, I got to get on a plane almost every week, which was a bummer, right? It was just tough for my family, but, um, the pluses way out, way uh, sort of out. Uh, now it did the the, the negatives. Um, so yeah. off I went. So Apex at that time had the technology, the broker dealer license. What exactly? What, what were the, the things that said, okay, this is that made you say, hey, this is this has all these pros that they're they're well positioned to take advantage of changing the industry. Yeah, look, I, I, I here's the thing. So, and this is what got Penson into trouble. They just said yes to everybody back then, right? This small, scrappy custody clearing firm uh, that was, you know, went public. So they have public shareholders that are breathing down their necks Whoa. and they just started saying yes to everything. Uh, and so they were in every, you know, they were this small company that was trying to do way too much, way, 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 way too much. But one of the things they did a good job of was they they built some technology with this little division of Penson that sort of started the revolution around you know what we know is kind of fintech and investing. And so there was clients like Motif, uh, if you remember Motif, uh, Scott Trade, uh, uh, Wealthfront, which at the time I think was called Kaching, uh, Betterment. Uh, so you had this sort of group of firms, uh, Trade King, you had this group of firms, Options House, that was trying to disrupt the traditional way of investing. Um, and so I talked to a bunch of the clients before I, I decided and said, hey, you know, what's what's good about Apex or Penson at the time? What's what's not good? And the answer was, hey, the technology, you know, is is pretty good. It's not great, but you know it's a lot better than anything we would get from Pershing or at the time Bear Stearns or any of the other players that were out there. Uh, and so that was, you know, for me it was like, okay, there, there's green shoots here. There's something to work with. 
Um, uh, yeah, and, and you know, I, I'm going to say it was clairvoyant, but you could see it, right? That there was some opportunity to step in and kind of drive from the bottom up. Awesome. So, so what? I guess now transitioning to what Apex actually does. So, um, what is that technology like? How do these customers interface with you? Let's say Betterment, a Wealthfront that many people, probably all of our listeners know. You know how? Yeah. How exactly so, do they so use think, Apex? Yeah. So think of Apex sort of like. I don't know, Shopify or, or Twilio, right, for investing, right? It's a platform. It's a B2B platform. Uh, to the extent possible, everything we do is real-time. Um, it's API-based, by and large. And, um, you know, our job is to sort of bring to life, as I said before, the man or woman behind the curtain, is to sort of bring to life an amazing kind of investing experience. So what, what does that actually mean? So you go on, Josh, you'll go on to on SoFi or Sash or Webull, right? You, you pull up the app and it says, okay, you want to open an account. You put in same thing you would do with, I don't know, per, you know through a Persian client. Put in your name, your address, your social security number. And when you press the button and say go, what happens is that information fires through to Apex's APIs real time. We effectively take Josh's information, interrogate it to make sure that you're not a bad actor, to make sure that you are who you say you are, uh, and assuming you pass all the KYC AML real time, boom, we pass back an account number and say, you're good to go, right? And all of that stuff happens through Apex. Now it's like, okay, the account's open in, congratulations, the account's open. Now it's like, okay, you want to fund the account? Okay, we're going to connect your bank account at Wells Fargo or Bank of America or wherever it is to this now new account that's opened on SoFi, right? We'll make a real-time link. Apex is doing the plumbing behind the scenes to connect the bank to this new brokerage account. And boom, you say, I want to move $100 in. Um, and so we'll facilitate that, right? So like all, all of the guts and plumbing and how that works real-time happens through Apex, right? And then that's the statements, the tax reporting, your cost basis, right? So if you want to sell something, how much did you buy it for? How much did you sell it for? All that, the settlement, all the guts and plumbing behind the scenes that frankly, not many people really appreciate what's going on back there. Uh, Apex takes care of. And at the end, actually holding your money. Uh, so, so what does that mean? Right. What it means is that, uh, you know, we support close to 300 different institutions today. Okay. Uh, you know, before we started, we were talking about one of the firms, Josh, we both know that that's running into issues. Okay. So some firms go out of business. Okay. And uh, if you're using Apex as the custodian, your assets are protected, right? So make the analogy to what's happened with SVB and the banks. This notion of like, hey, the stocks that I own, just because that company goes out of business, there's a real firm called Apex that actually is protecting you and your assets from that company that potentially could go out of business. Um, and, and that is really important, right? And it's sort of odd to me, uh, again, I... I know more than the average bear around this, but it's always odd to me that people don't really actually understand and appreciate sort of what Apex is, right? We're actually 
really important to you, the end investor, because if in fact something was to go wrong, there's a really strong backstop here to make sure that your assets are protected and are going to be there irrespective of whether, you know, Joe's brokerage firm, you know, in the middle of the night decides to blow up. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, where is the money actually held? It's held in like an Apex account. Like it's because Apex is a bank, right? So yeah. they have cash held at Apex. Yeah. So it's, you know, look, we're, we're regulated by the SEC and FINRA. And uh, so we'll hold, we'll open an account on our books. Um, you know, it's called a, like a corporate account in the name of that, you know, that broker dealer or that RA that we work with. And then there's within that account, there's there's a sort of designation that jo- this is Josh's money, and that's what's called fully disclosed. Effectively, it means that I know who you are as the custodian, and I know how much you have at any given time, and that if one of those firms blows up, I got you. Are you asking self-protecting? Got it. So, from a product perspective. You know, you have all these really powerful APIs that allow your customers to do a lot of really interesting things. You have these huge customers, right? huge scale. How do you think about, you know, your roadmap? Are you thinking about deploying new products and services, adding maybe different kinds of fixed income, like trading products or all these different kinds of trading products? Or are you thinking more about scalability? How do you think through all these different considerations you have, I'm sure, as a company? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the cool part is, there's no shortage of opportunity, right? And I talk about it all the time, which is, okay, we're going to be successful in a lot of the ways, a lot of different paths we can take. You know, the, the, the big challenge and this challenge for auto companies is like greatest yield. Okay, which, which one of those paths or several of the paths are going to generate the greatest outcome, right? Uh, and so you know, we spend a lot of time sort of figuring out, okay, what, what has the greatest yield? Right, I talk about return on investment kind of incessantly, and um, you know, we think about kind of what's what's next for Apex. Um, I, you know, you got to just stay kind of stay within some sort of guardrails because you can get really distracted, and it's about sort of spreading peanut butter, and, you know, really thin. Um, and so, uh, we're going to stay very focused on B two B retail, um, and uh, what does that mean, right? W- what are the opportunities? Kind of, what does the roadmap look like going forward? You touched on some of those things. Um, so one is okay. Now clients, especially clients overseas, are demanding for us to be able to offer twenty-four hour trading um, in equities. And so we launched that, you know, a couple months ago, which is you can now buy Tesla at two o'clock in the morning uh, if you wanted to. And it's not for the, you know, that type of service isn't for the sort of heavy trader, but it's for the casual person. Um, you again, lots of folks overseas because it's during their day, they want to buy $200 worth of Tesla, um, and not have to stay up, you know, in South Korea until, you know, two o'clock in the morning. Um, but even folks here, you're out to dinner with your friends and someone's like, Hey, there's this cool company that, uh, that. I think you guys should take a look at it. It's nine o'clock at night, but you can now buy, you know, $500 worth of that stock. So things like that 
Um, you mentioned fixed income, so not too surprising as the equity markets have waned as the Fed has raised rates. Um, there's a lot more interest in things like treasuries, uh, municipal bonds, tre- you know, corporate bonds, uh, which has never, you know, in the history of Apex, really been interesting to our client base. Right, the 25 million plus people we support today, it is now. Right, and so we're rolling out, uh, you know, sort of this notion of a fintech you know, solution for fixed income trading, fractional shares of treasuries, um, which again, uh, driving innovation, buying treasuries is for really rich people. You know, you're talking about, you know, very, very big trades. And for you or me uh, to want to buy $1,000 of of the 10-year, it's really hard to do. Um, I, I, did it a, I did it a few months ago and I was like, wow, how is... None of the uh, let's say front layer fintechs built anything like this, and, and as you said earlier, it's you know it's kind of everyone's moving in their own sequences, right? Everyone's moving as as much as the back end can provide. So, well, and, totally. and to your point, it's like an inchworm, right? The front end yeah. can only move as, as you know as the back end, yeah. and so you know this is a cool symbiotic relationship we have with our clients, which is okay. We're going to do the hard plumbing behind the scenes, and then we're going to avail that to the almost three hundred clients we have. And then they have to obviously code it into the front end and, and offer it, but we're going to do the hard work behind the scenes, uh, the sort of plumbing part to get it right. Um, and then the last piece I just say, just in terms of the kind of path forward is uh, the advisory world, right? The sort of traditional advisor world. It, it, it's sort of, you know, there's the fintech on one side and then there's traditional advisory on the other side that kind of make up retail, at least in the United States today. And this world, so we've been dominating fintech for a long time and doing our thing there. The world of advisory, it, it's pretty amazing. It's so far behind fintech in terms of innovation. Um, in, and so most of the advisors can't open accounts with less than $250,000 in it. And the reason for it is they're working with a custodian that's really geared towards high net worth, not towards scale and efficiency you mentioned before. And so there's a big opportunity for us to step into this world of advisory that's sort of dominated by Schwab and Fidelity and say, okay, we're going to take sort of our way of doing things, Apex way of doing things and apply it um, and allow for these advisors to be able to support somebody that's got $50,000. Like, you know, how many people in, in the United States could literally write a check tomorrow for $200,000 $200,000 and just hand it to an advisor. Like that's a lot of money. So um, being able to take what we've done for FinTech and apply it to advisory just seems obvious um, and smart for us. Yeah, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Do you mind just shedding some light on the scale that you guys are really operating at, some of your yeah. biggest customers? So, uh, you know, I, I said a few of these things. One is, we support roughly 300 different institutions uh, and clients, uh, a little over 25 million and, and investors that we support today. On, on a normal day, uh, you know, we'll do you know, 10 million trades uh, a day. Uh, wow. Wow. Uh, and so each one of those generates a confirm. So there's, yeah, there's millions upon millions of confirms that go out a day. 
Um, we have, you know, more than a half a billion dollars of capital as a company. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big company that no one knows about. Uh, yeah. Look, that's part of who we are, right? So we're, our job is to make SoFi and Stash and Webull and, and all those firms look amazing, right? Um, they take the victory laps for the end consumers. And our job is to sort of be behind the scenes and just keep doing great things to drive innovation. Uh, I do get frustrated at times as I look at the industry and, and you know, they talk about, you know, the, I'll just say frac- you're going to zero commission and, you know, that was pioneered by Robinhood. Well, if it wasn't for Apex behind Robinhood, that wouldn't have happened, right? Right. Uh, and, you know, fractional shares, like there's a whole bunch of folks that take, take credit for it. Um, yeah, we're just quietly behind the scenes kind of driving those things. And there's still a shit ton to do. There's still a lot of stuff for us to keep focused on and keep lowering the barriers. I mean, you know, we're still settling trades T plus two. Think about it. It's 2023. You buy something today in equity. It's not settling for two more dates. Why? Well, that's not why? for the apex. Like, apex. Yeah, why Why is that? You know, I've always wondered why that is. It, it's because, you remember I said about Cobalt Code and I yeah. mainframe. Most of the big banks in our industry are all built on old technology. The back end, you know, let's go back to the inchworm. The back of the inchworm is sitting there. It's set in stone. It's just, it's getting dragged along really slowly. And, um, and yeah, you know, the, the, the big banks drive a lot of what's happening in, in the, you know, the finance industry. You know, you compare that to what's happening in crypto. Crypto sells real time. So you buy something, you have the money or you don't have the money, you buy it, it's settled. You know, you have equities, it's two days. So it's Friday today, right? We, you, you buy something today, you go through the weekend, it doesn't even count weekend days. You're not selling that trade until Tuesday. It's like, what is happening here? Um, so there's still a ton to do in our industry to sort of, you know, modernize. Um, you know, for the folks listening, like, there's still a ton of opportunity for young folks. Like this is not, this is not over, right? It's not like, ah, well, you know, there's, there's, you know, sort of the fintech wave has played through and, and there's not a lot more to do. There's a ton to do for young folks to jump into, you know, fintech to finance and drive change. That was, that was going to be my next question. So, so I, it, it sometimes feels that way where you're looking at the fintech industry and you're like, yes, I get that this is huge percentage of GDP and so there's money involved, but there's so many players, there's so many people doing so many different things. Where Where's the opportunity? Well, look, I, 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 of course, selfishly say there's a lot on the plumbing side, right? I think I, I would say through this sort of gold rush of 2020 and 2021, there was so much venture capital and private equity money that went into sort of the shiny red walls, right? The front end things, right? Direct to consumer that we wake up today, there's just too many choices from my perspective. There's just so many different flavors. Um, uh, but there's still a ton to do in terms of, I'll call it the picks and shovels, right? The, the sort of the B2B side of it. And uh, uh, in that, that's frankly, go back to what we talked about, fixed income or 24-7 trading or 
you know, what's happening in and around NFTs, uh, things around private securities, right? Think about all the companies that aren't public that that you, Josh, should be able to invest in if you wanted to. There's still a ton to do um, to make that A, accessible, because uh, a lot of it's not accessible today, and B, makes it accessible in a way that, you know, sort of John or Jane Q public can actually do it and invest without it being so burdensome, right? So think about, I don't know, the big, big private company today. You know, let's take Apex. You could not invest in Apex even if you wanted to, right? Even if I had shares available because there's no market to sort of provide the ability for Josh to get access to buy private shares in a company. And so what ends up happening is, again, it's a rich person's thing. Right, that's where private equity steps in and says, "Hey, well, we have these investments in these private companies, and there's a sort of good old boys, good old girls network of if you have a lot of money, we'll let you in the club." Um, and so, you know, there's still opportunity for things like that for us to say, "Hey, this this is this isn't fair. Let's let's you know dig in and figure out how to connect those dots for people." What are some products that you see really working, especially in these days? as um the industry kind of shifts some products that you offer that you see the end customer really taking advantage of i know there was a lot of hot stuff around like auto deposits a few years ago it was like you go and sign into any sort of app or you go online it's like auto deposits you know 500 rebate for setting up auto deposits all these different things about so what's what's the new let's call it auto deposit at least from your perspective yeah, I wouldn't say there's like this this one thing, right? I think it's a series of things. Um, one is as the Fed continues to raise rates, yeah. uh, and you know, on the heels of what happened in some of these small banks that blew up, um, there's this notion of of putting some of your cash, um, and that the cool part about inside of an Apex, Apex provides us to our clients is like laddering of the cash. And so you'd think, you know, there's FDIC insurance and it's only up to 250000 Well, what we've done is we've kind of stitched together a series of banks. So Josh showed up and said, hey, I want to send you $350,000 and I'm going to make 5% on that money. What we would do is take two fifty, put it at one bank, take the extra hundred and put it at the next bank and sort of do that work for you, right? Which is to sort of protect your cash but sort of ladder a whole bunch of banks. So you could take up to $5 million for Josh and say, okay, you can place it within your brokerage firm through Apex and we'll take the money and ladder it out over the course of a series of banks to protect. Uh, and given the, where the Fed is and where the Fed's going to continue to go, people, I think, is smartly trying to chase yield. Um, I think it's a little silly to kind of chase you know, single basis points like, okay, this bank's offering 5.26% versus 5.24%. Yeah. Like, does it really matter in, in a big scheme of things? But I do think um, allowing you to sort of place one in one place that does provide a good rate and have the protection, I think is a smart, smart thing. Um, second thing we talk about is, is fixed income. Again, follows, you know, sort of risk. Uh, the risk appetite, uh, so rolling out those products more for John Q, Jane Q public. And then the last part, which I think is really interesting is, you know, a lot of people, a lot of young folks got burned picking stocks, 
in 22. Right? Everyone thought that they were a professional trader in 20 and 21. And then all of a sudden, sort of music stopped in 22. Um, and uh, and they're waking up to like, hey, maybe I'm not that good at this. Because it's really hard to be a professional trader. Like really hard. Because you're, you're competing with some amazing machines out there. Um, this notion of of being able to place your money in more uh, more passive investment solutions. Um, I'm going to use the word robo, but effectively something where um, you get the sort of best of both worlds. So there's products out there that Apex supports through this kind of co- concept of direct indexing where, Josh, you take $1,000, you can put it into this passive index product um, and it's actually investing in individual stocks, right? Uh, and you can go in and actually say, hey, I don't like, you know, tobacco. So I'm going to actually exclude certain things from that portfolio and kind of customize it to what Josh likes and what what matters to you, um, but not have to be sitting, staring at a screen, picking individual stocks all day long. Like there's actually somebody that's going to help manage the quote-unquote portfolio but still give you some control, some you know uniqueness, some ability to create something individual for you. That that's something that I think is uh, is you know it continues to kind of push forward, and it's kind of a new thing that I think is is going to continue to take hold for young folks. Cool. So last question before our You're exciting uh, lightning round. Um, you have three hundred institutions that are partnered with Apex. A lot of people in business school tend to be more interested, more accessible on the customer side, on the retail side. Um, what are some paths to success that you see across, not, not specific, but more just generally speaking, like what are some common threads across all of those institutions that cause them to be successful with, with offerings to retail customers? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, so, you know, maybe said differently. Well, like what are the discernible patterns that I yeah. see wide success? Um, if you were an AI and you could just pull out all the patterns, you know, from, from all. It starts with, and, and I think it's really important is like, who, who are the founders? Who are the folks at the front of the line? Right. Are they inspiring? Like, do, do they actually have a real vision? Right. Or are they just trying to meet too? Right? Are they just trying to copycat somebody else? Um, are they doing something unique? Right? So I'll give you an example of folks at public.com, you know, really trying to push the envelope and do things differently. Now they're still doing it within this kind of framework of investing, but um, I looked at them and said, hey, they're they're winners. Like they're they're pushing the envelope. Um, and then the second part is, you know, as people are looking at, you know, potentially joining some of those firms is Go to the office, spend a day, right? Or spend some time and just ask them if, if you can come in and just kind of hang out. What is the vibe in the office? And by the way, is it even in an office? So I'll just tell you, maybe I'm an old guy saying this, but like, you know, I, I have a son who's going to be graduating next year. Like, find a job where you're actually going to the office because it matters. Maybe not every day. It doesn't have to be every day. We, we go three days a week. Um, but this notion of sitting at home, you can't get that, what I just described, which is go in the office and get a sense of 
culture, the vibe of this place? Is it, you know, is it hair on fire? Is it, are people excited? And, and then the last part is ask the question, which sounds silly, but like, what is the purpose? What's your purpose as a company? Why are you here? What are we trying to accomplish? And if the answer is trying to make money, we're trying to make the shareholders richer. I don't know. That's tough for me. Um, there's got to be something that's like, hey, we're trying to do this. We're trying to, you know, so for Apex, as an example, is our purpose is to help every person on the planet invest in their future, right? Will I get there? Probably not, but it's a pretty lofty goal and we're on our way. 25 million people that, you know, largely didn't have an opportunity to invest before Apex now do. That's pretty cool. Um, so, that's the first part is is the people that lead the company the vibe inside the company uh and the purpose of the company um and then the last part i'll say which is kind of where in 2023 is some sense of their financials josh is like okay lots of folks on this coming out of mba school like read the balance sheet i get some sense of uh you know sort of the income statement because there's a lot of these firms that may check the first three boxes, but have two months of runway left. Uh, and, you know, the tricky part right now for a lot of those B2C companies is, um, you know, venture capital, private equity money is not putting more money into these things. So do they have enough runway to get from here to there? Yeah. You said as part of your vision, um, people on the planet, are you looking to explain glo- globally more and more? Yeah, so look, um, Apex going into let's just say Brazil. Actually, we're you know we're doing a lot in Brazil. But for us to say, hey, we're going to go into Brazil and we're going to offer the best Brazilian execution. Um, you know, I, like I said back to the G Trade days, like I'm not going to be great in Brazil, right? The reality though is most people on the planet want to invest in the United States, right? deepest liquidity, most, you know, diversity in terms of the places that, you know, the type of companies they can invest in and your choice, right? You know, you go into some of these smaller exchanges, you're talking about there's probably five or 10 names that trade anything in size and then everything else, you couldn't even get an order completed in a day. So, so our focus is, is really on the U.S. markets in terms of where, the executions will be and crypto. So we'll talk about crypto as well. Um, but accept, making that accessible for you know people around the world. Um, so so what does that mean? And we're kind of executing on this. We're opening, we opened in Belfast. Uh, we're opening up in the Philippines uh, in September. Um, uh, a lot of growth for Apex is coming from outside the US through those companies that we're working with. Things like 24 by 5 trading, you know, we're roughly 15 to 20% of all trading now that happens outside of the normal trading hours. And it's driven almost exclusively from people outside the U.S. And then to double click even further, most of that's coming from South Korea, believe it or not. Well, lots of folks in South Korea that are really interested in investing in U.S. stocks. Well, that's so interesting. Um, okay. Now for our quick, quick lightning round, I know, I know we're short on time. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would give to someone, let's say at business school, looking to grow their career in fintech or entrepreneurship? 
Yeah. So there's two things I, I talked to my son about, right? He's you know, 21. So one is take communication classes, right? It's just frustrating to me because you know, people don't actually know how to communicate well. They're written. People certainly don't know how to get up in front of a crowd and, and speak. And it's tough, but learn how to do that. It's, it's a skill. It's not innate that learn how to communicate. Two is, um, even if you're not, a, you mentioned your computer science uh, kind of focus, Josh, lots of people listeners are not, but take a class, learn, learn, because everything out there, I don't care if you're a marketing major or you're, you know, HR, technology, right? You got to actually understand how things work. So, you know, do yourself a favor and, and learn, right? There's a lot of ways to learn. You don't have to just take sort of you know, classes in, in college or your MBA, it's just, just lots of opportunities to learn. And then the last piece is dive in both feet to AI. You know, you're not far behind. It just started, right? And I make the analogy to the internet back when, I mean, you know, when I think about hiring kids next year for Apex, you know, show up and tell me that, hey, you, you understand kind of the underpinning uh, and how it can, you know, change Apex, um, there's so many applications for generative AI, uh, and those sort of, you know, we have the interns at our, at our company this year. And I, I just show hands, how many of you are really every day using chat GPT or Bard and less than half the hands go up and they don't, have, they don't have the pro subscription. That's the problem. That's right. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's like every day, just play with it, learn. I mean, you can go on, you know, TikTok or on YouTube and just watch videos on, on what, what it is and the application Get smart because that is going to drive a whole bunch of change over the course of the next five to 10 years. And, you know, there's the haves and the have nots around it today that, uh, you know, uh, to me, it's, it's a miss. People aren't leaning in. Top book recommendations. Yeah. The book, there's a few, but I think the one um, that's a good one to read is, is essentialism, right? So I talked before about um, all the opportunities at Apex. You know, I'd love to chase all of them down, right? And I'm not good at this, by the way, which is why this is kind of my favorite book is like, I I love opportunity and I just, you know, like I want to do everything. Um, and, you know, part of the, probably my biggest weakness sitting in my seat is I try and do too much. And, and uh, there's a book called Essentialism that, you know, kind of tries to ground me around, okay, focus on the things that matter the most and then move on to the next things. Um, so it's a, it's a good, quick read for folks and it kind of sets pretty good underpinning around how to do that. Awesome. Uh, and how can people get in touch with you? Let's say they loved everything you said here. Um, would love to chat with you some more. How could people get in touch with you if they want to learn? Yeah, cool. I mean, look, uh, you know, our, our website, it's uh, apexfintechsolutions.com uh, or hit me up on LinkedIn. So I, you know, I do connect on LinkedIn. It's William Capuzzi, the last name C-A-P-U-Z-Z-I. Uh, if folks want to learn more or connect with me, you know, that's probably a good place. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please like or comment on social media, or even consider leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word to more listeners. 
you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast. Or you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium, at Warren Fintech. And there you can find interviews, articles, and so much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Saria. And until next time, I'm your host, Josh Benedivo. Thank you.